John chapter 15, where we're starting today, is in the middle of a very long discourse, a very long teaching of Jesus, which we call the upper room discourse. Uh, And it actually starts in chapter 13, and it doesn't end until chapter 17. So it's very long. And at the beginning of chapter 13, we see Jesus joining his disciples in the upper room where they celebrate the, the festival of Passover. And it's there where Jesus institutes the Lord's Supper in John chapter 13. And he teaches then in chapter 13 and 14. And now as we come to chapter 15, we see a transition in this discourse, a transition in his teaching. Because look at what it says in the very last verse of chapter 14. It says, rise, let us go from here. So it appears that at the end of chapter 14 and the beginning of chapter 15, that Jesus and the disciples get up from that upper room where they've just celebrated the Last Supper, and they start walking towards the Garden of Gethsemane, where just in a few hours, Jesus is going to be arrested. And as they are traveling, as they are walking from the upper room to the Garden of Gethsemane, Jesus makes this declaration. He says, I am the true vine. Now, as we have been studying through the book of John, we have seen seven different times that Jesus has made an I am declaration, these I am statements. And in each of these I am statements, what Jesus is saying is that he is the one who gives life. You see that in some of the other I am statements. He says, I am the bread of life. He says, I am the resurrection in the life. I I am the way, the truth, and the life. And now in this final metaphor, Jesus says, I am the vine. And in saying that I'm the vine, he is still saying I'm the one who gives life because a branch only receives life as long as it's plugged into the vine. As long as it's receiving the sap from the the trunk of the tree, that is when the branches remain alive. You're only alive when you're connected to the vine. And so this morning, as we examine Jesus's metaphor of the vine, I want to approach it by breaking it down into three parts. First of all, we're going to examine the metaphor of the vine in verses one through three. Secondly, we're going to examine what it means to be connected to the vine in verses 4 through 7. And then we're going to look at the benefits of being connected to the vine in verses 7 through 11. So examine the metaphor of the vine, 1 through 3, what it means to be connected to the vine, 4 through 7, and then the benefits of being connected to the vine, verses 7 through 11. And at the conclusion of this examination, we are going to learn that when we are connected to Jesus, the true vine we will experience fruitful, meaningful, and joyful lives. When we are connected to Jesus, the true vine, we will live, live out fruitful, meaningful, and joyful lives. So let's start then by examining the metaphor of the vine in verses one through three. In this metaphor, there are three elements that we see. First, we see God the Father is the vine dresser. Secondly, we see that Jesus is the true vine. And then third, we see that we are the branches. So let's start with Jesus, or God the Father as the vine dresser. Look again at verse one. It says, I am the true vine, and my father is the vine dresser. Well, a vine dresser is just a fancy way of saying that he's a grape farmer. He, he, the father is the one who's growing the vines. He's the farmer. And this description of God the Father as being a vine dresser or as being someone who, who plants vineyards is very common throughout the Old Testament. In fact, for example, in in Isaiah chapter 5, Isaiah tells a parable. 
And in this parable, he describes a farmer who decides he wants to plant a vineyard. And so he goes and he, he erects a fence around the land where he wants to grow it. He plants the vineyard. He, he tills the, the fields. He, he, he trims back the, the, the vines. He, he builds a, a place to, for, for where they will smash the grapes and turn it into wine. And he's really excited about this vine. But then when the vines grow up, it says that those vines produce wild grapes. They, they don't produce the fruit that the vine dresser was expecting. And so this vine dresser tears out the vineyard because the, vi because the vines didn't produce the fruit that he was hoping for. And then Isaiah tells us that how, the meaning of the parable. And he says that God the Father is the vine dresser who planted that vineyard. And that it is Israel who is the vine. And because of Israel's injustice and Israel's unrighteousness, they did not produce the fruit that God expected. And so the Lord was going to rip out the vineyard from Israel. Look at what it says in Isaiah 5, 7 at the conclusion of this parable. Isaiah says, For the vineyard of the Lord of hosts is the house of Israel, and the men of Judah are his pleasant planting. And he looked for justice, but behold, bloodshed. For righteousness, but behold, an outcry. So Israel is the vine planted by the Lord, but that vine produced bad fruit. It produced not justice and righteousness, but it produced bloodshed. And so the Lord is tearing out now that vineyard. So now when we come to John chapter 15, Jesus is taking that illustration that comes from Isaiah, and he's saying that God the Father is still the vine dresser. But now, rather than Israel being the vine, who does he say the vine is? He says, I am the true vine. Israel is no longer the vine because their, their fruit was injustice. It was bloodshed. But Jesus has come as the true vine and he will produce a fruit of righteousness. He'll produce a fruit of justice. And so in calling himself the true vine, Jesus is contrasting himself with the nation of Israel and he's declaring himself to be the true Israel. He's declaring himself to be the fulfillment of all that God wanted to accomplish through the nation of Israel. In other words, he's saying that to be part of the people of God means no longer to be connected to the nation of Israel, but rather it's to be connected to him. That right relationship with God is not found in being a descendant of Abraham, but it's being found in being in relationship and being connected to him, the true vine. So God is the vine dresser. And Jesus, not Israel, but Jesus is the true vine. Which brings us to the third element in this metaphor, which is the branches. And that's us. And look, take a look at what he says about the branches in verse 2. He says, Every branch in me that does not bear fruit, he takes away. And every branch that does bear fruit, he prunes that it may bear more fruit. So Jesus makes a distinction between two different types of branches. First, there are the branches that don't bear fruit. And he says, those are taken away. And then there's the branches that do bear fruit. And what happens with them? The father prunes them so that they can be more productive. And the way to tell the difference between these two branches, the distinction between these two branches, is their ability to produce fruit. Which leads to the obvious question, what is meant by producing fruit? Well, the New Testament has a lot of uh, references to fruit. And so what, let's take a look at a couple of those, and it'll give us an understanding of what is meant here by bearing fruit. First of all, in James 3.18, we see fruit connected with righteousness and with peacemaking. James 3.17 says, the wisdom from above is full of mercy and good fruits, and a harvest of righteousness is sown in peace by those who make peace. 
Probably the most well-known metaphor of fruit is found in Galatians 5, verses 22 and 23, which says the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. Against such things there is no law. Now, sometimes I've heard people, when they're talking about the fruit of the Spirit in Galatians 5, what they think is happening here is they're saying that if I have the Holy Spirit within me, then he's going to cause me to experience love and joy and peace and kindness. But that's not what it says here. The fruit is not what we feel from what the Holy Spirit has done for us, but the fruit is actually what we do. It's our character being exhibited and lived out. It's as, as we are indwelled by the Holy Spirit, he will cause us to live out and give to others love and joy and peace and kindness. We will live out gentleness and we will live out self-control. So in other words, bearing fruit means exhibiting a life characterized by righteousness, a life characterized by peace, a life characterized by the fruit of the Spirit. Bearing fruit means that we are exhibiting a life characterized by righteousness, by peace, and by the fruit of the Spirit. And what does Jesus say about those branches that don't bear this kind of fruit? He says in verse 2 that every branch in me that does not bear fruit, he takes away. He elaborates on this in verse 6. He says, if anyone does not abide in me, he is thrown away like a branch and withers. And the branches are gathered and they're thrown into the fire and they're burnt. Jesus says the farmer is going to take those branches that don't produce fruit. He's going to gather them up and he's going to toss them on the burn pile. Now note in verse 2, he says something interesting. He says that those branches in me that do not bear fruit. You see, the distinction he's making here is not whether or not the branches are in the vineyard. They are in the vineyard. The distinction is whether or not the fruit is actually producing fruit. Are the branches producing fruit or not? Are they producing a fruit of righteousness? Are they producing the fruit of the Spirit? And if they are not producing the fruit of the Spirit, then those branches are being gathered up and they're being burned. You see, it's not just enough to hang around Jesus. It's not just enough to, to hang around the church. It's not just enough to accumulate knowledge about who Jesus is or accumulate knowledge about the Bible or, or to know theology. Jesus says what matters is are you producing fruit? Because every branch in me that does not bear fruit, he takes away. So then we have the other types of branches. We have the branches that are producing fruit. And what does the farmer do with them? It says in verse two, he prunes them. Verse two says, every branch that does not bear fruit, he prunes so that it may bear more fruit. Pruning is a very important way to increase the productivity of a fruit-bearing plant. An untrimmed vine is going to develop these long and rambling branches because all of the energy of the plant is going into producing more wood, to producing more branch, and it's not going into producing fruit. And so a good farmer will come along and will trim the branches back. It will trim the wood so that the energy doesn't go into producing wood, but goes into producing more and more abundant fruit. Which means for those who are connected to the vine, for those who are producing fruit, God is going to come along and he's going to shape us into something that produces even more fruit. And he's going to trim away those parts of us that are not helping us to produce that kind of fruit. Now, I think early in our walk with Jesus, early in our discipleship, we see that trimming back. We see that pruning really is pruning back those things which are leading us into sin. 
So he prunes away our addictions. He, he prunes away our sinful attitudes that interfere with producing righteousness. And this pruning is important as, as he begins to root out the sin in our lives. But as I have grown in my faith, as I have continued in my walk with Jesus, one of the things that I have realized is that God not, sometimes doesn't just prune the sinful tendencies in my life, but sometimes he actually prunes positive and good things as well. For me, this was most evident in 2003. In 2003, uh, I was going to seminary with the intention that I was going to become a pastor. And as I was going to seminary, I was also working full-time, uh, and I had two kids at home and a wife at home. And that, would that took a lot of my time between seminary and going to school and working 40 hours a week and, and having a family. It just, it was taking a lot out of me. And the thing that suffered the most was not seminary because I was doing well there and enjoying that. It wasn't work because you got to keep up the work. The thing that was suffering was my family. I was not being the kind of father and husband that I should be. And so I had a good friend take me out to lunch one day. And he said, Ken, you're going to graduate from seminary and you're not going to be qualified to be a pastor because you had not taken care of your family. And God in that moment was pruning me. He pruned seminary from me. He cut it out. And I had to quit. And I kept thinking, God, I want to produce fruit for you, right? I mean, how much more productive can I be for you? How much more fruit can I be if I'm a pastor? Because then I can lead people to Christ. I can disciple people. I can teach people. That's going to produce so much fruit for you. But what I didn't realize is that producing fruit is not how many hours of service I put into God. Producing fruit isn't how many people I disciple or how many people I teach. The fruit is my character. The fruit is love and joy and peace and patience within me. And I was not allowing that to grow. I was growing wood thinking that I was going to be this great pastor who taught a lot of people and that was going to be fruit. And God had to cut that out of my life so that he could mold and develop my character. Sometimes when God prunes us, he's not just cutting back the diseased part of the vine. Sometimes he's trimming back the healthy part because that healthy part is getting in the way of actually producing the good thing, which is the fruit of righteousness within us. And so God will sometimes bring painful circumstances into our life as part of that pruning process because God is far more concerned about our character than he is about our comfort. Hebrews 12, 11 says it this way. For the moment... All discipline seems painful rather than pleasant, but later it yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness to those who have been trained by it. If we are producing fruit, then the God the Father is going to come along and he's going to prune us back so that we can produce even more. Now, Jesus says more about this pruning in verse 3. Look at verse 3. He says, already you are clean because of the word that I have spoken to you. He's speaking here to the disciples. And unfortunately, we lose something here in the English translation. Because the origin, in the original Greek, the word prune in verse 2 and the word clean in verse 3 have the same root. So for you grammar nerds, that, that the word clean is just the noun form of the word translated prune in verse 2. So in other words, it would be completely legitimate to translate verse 3 to say, already you have been pruned because of the word that I've spoken to you. So how is it that Jesus says that the disciples have been cleansed? How have they been pruned? Jesus says it's because of the word that I, that I spoke, have spoken to you. In other words, God's word is like pruning shears in the hands of God. 
Those pruning shears can be quite sharp though, can't they? In Hebrews 4.12, it says, the word of God is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing to the division of soul and spirit, of joints and marrow, of discerning the thoughts and the intentions of the heart. See, God's word will cut into us so that it can expose our thoughts and our intentions. 2 Timothy 3.16 says that the scriptures will rebuke us. They will correct us so that we can be trained and disciplined in righteousness. And if we let the word of God penetrate us, prune us back, it may not be a pleasant experience because it is going to expose those parts of us that need to be pruned. It's going to expose those areas that God needs to trim back. It will expose our true intentions and God will use his word to prune us and train us in righteousness. But this is a good thing. It is a good thing because in this pruning, we will become people who produce more and more fruits of righteousness, more and more of the fruits of the spirit. So if we want to be that branch that produces fruit, how do we become that branch that produces fruit? He tells us in verses four and five. He says, abide in me and I in you. As the branches cannot bear fruit by itself unless it abides in the vine, neither can you unless you abide in me. I am the vine, you are the branches. Whoever abides in me and I in him, he it is that bears much fruit. For apart from me, you can do nothing. Jesus says we can't produce fruit on our own. We are not capable of doing so. The only way we can produce fruit is to be connected to the vine, to be united with Christ, to abide in Jesus. So now that we've examined a little bit of this metaphor in verses one through three, what we're going to do now in verses four through seven is we're going to examine to see what does it mean to be connected to the vine? What does it mean to abide in Jesus? Because if I'm going to bear fruit, I have to abide in him. I have to be connected to him. How do we do that? What does it mean to abide in Jesus? Well, the word abide is kind of an old-fashioned word. We don't use that a lot in everyday speech. You probably didn't use the word abide this week, I'm guessing, most of you. Um, But there are two real connotations to the word abide. First of all, to abide means to be spiritually or physically present with someone. It's to live with someone. It's literally to dwell with them. And not dwelling like you would a a roommate that you kind of pass in the hallway and just kind of say hi as you're interacting with each other, but actually living an intimate relationship with somebody. We need to dwell with Jesus. Secondly, to abide also means to remain present over a long period of time. It can be translated as remain. It could be, so we could say, remain in Jesus. So we want to abide in Jesus. We want to dwell with him for not just a short period of time, but over a long period of time. And as we dwell with Jesus over a long period of time, we interact with him and such that his heart and his mind and his character starts rubbing off on us. And it starts changing our character so that we become more and more like him. See, abiding is not just some emotional connection to Jesus. It's not a a warm, fuzzy feeling with Jesus. Rather, it's staying connected. It's being devoted to Jesus, even when we feel distant from him. It's remaining in him, even when the circumstances make it so I don't feel like being with him. It's being devoted to him no matter what. And what does that look like? How do we do that? How do we connect ourselves to the vine? How do we abide in Jesus? Let me give you four practical steps to connecting to the vine. Four practical steps by which we can abide in Jesus. And the first step is to be aware of our need for Jesus. 
We need to be aware of our need for Jesus. Look what he says in verse four. As the branch cannot bear fruit by itself unless it abides in the vine, neither can you unless you abide in me. Jesus says, without him, we cannot exhibit the fruit of righteousness. Without him, we cannot exhibit the fruits of the spirit. And he puts it very bluntly at the end of verse five, doesn't he? Without me, you can do what? Nothing. We can do nothing without Jesus. This is so completely opposite of what the world wants to teach us because our culture says you can accomplish anything with enough hard work and with enough belief. But Jesus says that's a lie. Your hard work and your belief will get you nowhere if it's not with me because without him, we can do nothing. Now, you may ask, how can it be that apart from Jesus, we can do nothing? Because I know a lot of nice people who do very loving things and they don't believe in Jesus. I know a lot of people who aren't Christians who do a lot of good works in the community and they're lovely people. How can we say that without Jesus, we can't do anything? Well, it is true indeed that people who aren't Jesus followers can do nice things and do do nice things for other people. But there are two problems we have to remember. First of all, that without Jesus, most of our good works are done out of impure motives. Because even if we do something that's loving for others, it's not a selfless love. It's usually a self-serving love. We will usually love other people so that they will love us back. Or we will love other people so that other people will look at us and say, hey, they're pretty good people. Or we will love other people just so that we can feel good about ourselves. And so even in our love for other people, it comes with impure motives, which is why the prophet Isaiah says in Isaiah 64, 6, that all of our righteous acts are like filthy rags. The impurity of our motives Create our righteous acts to be like filthy rags. Secondly, without Jesus, we can never do enough good works to overcome the sinful rebellion that we have against God. In Romans 3.23, it says, all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. In other words, God does not grade on the curve. We don't have to just be better than someone else. We actually have to achieve to the level of goodness of God himself that the standard is the full glory of God. And none of us can match up to that without Jesus. None of us. And that's why Jesus says, apart from me, you can do nothing. So the first step to abiding in Jesus is to recognize our acute need for Jesus. We need him to accomplish anything. We need to be aware of our need for Jesus. The second step to abiding is to confess and believe that Jesus is the Son of God. 1 John 4.14 says it this way, And we have seen and testified that the Father has sent his Son to be the Savior of the world. Whoever confesses that Jesus is the Son of God, God abides in him, and he in God. You see, because we are sinful rebels, we have been sentenced to die. But while we were yet sinners, God sent his son Jesus into the world to become human and to die in our place. And, if, and as a result of that, we can be saved from sin and death. And if we believe that in our hearts, and if we confess that with our mouth, then this verse says that God will take up residence in us, that God will abide in you and you can abide in God. Some of you listening today are not producing fruit and you're not abiding in Jesus because you have never taken this step to confess and to believe that Jesus has come to save you from sin and from death. 
Maybe you've been hanging around church for a while. Maybe you've been watching on the live stream. Maybe you've been coming on Sunday mornings. Maybe you've been part of an outreach group like Grief Share or Celebrate Recovery. Maybe you've started to build friendships here at the college group or in a community group, but you have never made the decision to go all in with Jesus. My friends, hanging around the vine is not the same as abiding in the vine. You have to be grafted into the vine. You have to choose to believe Jesus. You have to say with your mouth, I believe that Jesus is the son of God and he has come to save me from my sin. And there is nothing more important in your life than making that simple but profound confession. For with that confession, God will come and abide in you and you will abide in God. So the second step to abiding in Jesus is simply to confess and to believe in him. Well, having done that, we are now just starting the journey of abiding in Jesus. That just opens the door to it, which leads us then to our third step in abiding in Jesus is that we are to abide in his word. We need to abide in his word. Look what it says in verse seven. It says, if you abide in me and my words abide in you. Jesus is equating abiding in him with abiding in his words. If my words abide in me, my if, my, if you abide in me, my words abide in you. Jesus says something very similar in John 8, 31. John 8, 31, he says, if you abide in my word, you are truly my disciples. So how do we abide in the words of Jesus? Well, the answer is simple. The words of Jesus have been recorded for us in the Bible. Jesus promised that the Holy Spirit would cause his followers to remember his words accurately. We saw this last week in John chapter 14, verse 25. John 14, 25 says, these things I've spoken to you while I'm still with you, but the helper, the Holy Spirit, whom the father will send in my name, he will teach you all things and bring to your remembrance all that I've said to you. So Jesus's early followers, those who were, had walked with him, recorded for us the words of Jesus. And Jesus promises that the Holy Spirit would supernaturally enable them to remember exactly the words that Jesus said. And so now we can abide in Jesus's words by reading that record in our Bible. That is to say, we abide in the words of Jesus by reading our Bible, by studying our Bible, by, by memorizing it, by meditating on the Bible. You know, the key to any healthy relationship is communication. We, we know that. And if you are in a relationship with someone and they start text messaging you and you just like stop responding to them, you just kind of ghost them, that relationship that, with that person that you've got is going to start deteriorating. Well, Jesus doesn't talk to us through text messaging. He talks to us through the Bible. And many of us are ignoring that message. We've gone months, we've gone weeks, we've gone maybe years without picking up and reading and studying God's word, which means we are not listening. We are not abiding with the word of God. And our relationship with Jesus will start to deteriorate if we do that. The third step to abiding in Jesus is to abide in his word. The fourth step to abiding in Jesus is to pray. It's to pray. Take a look at the last half of verse seven. He says, if you abide in me and my words abide in you, ask whatever you wish and it will be done for you. See, those who abide in Jesus are being invited to pray to him, to ask him for whatever they wish and Jesus will do it for you. I mean, that's a pretty big promise, right? Ask whatever you wish and Jesus will do it. But notice the interplay that Jesus has between his word and prayer, that abiding in his word and asking whatever we wish. Because remember, relationships take communication, and that has to be two-way communication. So Jesus talks to us through the word, 
And then we communicate back to Jesus through prayer. And that's why reading and praying must go together. It's how we communicate back and forth to God. It's how we abide with Jesus. It's how we have real relationship with him. Now, some people will pray very regularly. They're faithful prayers, but they don't really study the Bible very much. Maybe they'll read a verse or two, but most of their time is spent in prayer, and they don't really pay attention much to reading the word. And as a result, their prayers are not being shaped by the truth of God. This is like being in a relationship where you're doing all the talking and you're not letting the other person get a word in edgewise. You're so when that happens, you don't get to hear what the other person is thinking, what they, what they believe or what they like or what they want. And that's what prayer without Bible reading is. It's us talking, but not listening to hear and to be formed by who Jesus is. Now there's other people who really love to study the Bible. They, they love to read it. They love to research it. They get into it. They read commentaries and Bible study books. And they love gathering facts about God and facts about theology and Bible study. But they never spend time talking to God. Or if they do, it's just a, a quick prayer. It's not a deep prayer with them. And that's like getting that text message from God, but never responding back. If we read the Bible without prayer, we're basically ghosting God. Because he's talking to us, but we're not responding. And God wants to hear from us. He wants to bless us by answering our prayers. And that's why Bible reading and prayer have to go together. Abiding in Christ involves relationship. And that requires two-way communication. So abiding in Jesus is not just reading the Bible, but it's also responding back to him in prayer. So how do we abide in Jesus? First, we have to recognize that we need him. Secondly, we have to confess that he is our savior. Third, we have to read our Bibles. And fourth, we have to be in prayer before Jesus. And that's what it means to be connected to the vine in verses four through seven. Finally then, let's talk about the benefits of being connected to the vine in verses seven through 11. And Jesus gives us four benefits of abiding in him. Four benefits of abiding him. And the first benefit of abiding in Jesus is answered prayer. We already saw this in verse 7. He says, if you abide in me and my words abide in you, ask whatever you wish and it will be done for you. Jesus mentions this benefit of answered prayer three times in the upper room discourse. He says it in chapter 14, John 14, 14. If you ask me anything in my name, I will do it. In John 16, 24, Jesus says, until now you have asked nothing in my name. Ask and you will receive that your joy may be full. Jesus says that if we abide in him, we can ask whatever we want and he will do it. So let me ask you, does Jesus really mean this? I mean, if I pray to Jesus that he would give me a million dollars or that I would win the lottery, is he going to do that for me? Well, so far it hasn't worked for me. So if Jesus is saying, all we have to do is ask, why are my prayers going unanswered? If our prayers are going unanswered, it's because our prayers have not been formed with hearts that are abiding in Jesus. When Jesus says our prayers are going to be answered, he's not promising to grant us every wish like he's some genie in a bottle and all I have to do is rub the lamp and he'll immediately give me whatever I want. Rather, the more we abide with Jesus the more our hearts become aligned with him. And he begins to change our affections. He he begins to change our desires. He begins to change our wishes so that when we start praying for whatever we wish, that wish has been informed and molded by his word. 
And so we find ourselves praying in accordance with the word of God. We become praying within a will that's been shaped by the will of God. And as a result, our prayers are going to be answered because our will accords with the very will of God. Because the benefit of abiding in Jesus is that our prayers will be answered. It's answered prayer. The second benefit of abiding in Jesus is that the Father is glorified. Take a look in verse 8. He says, by this, my father is glorified, that you bear much fruit and so prove to be my disciples. When we abide in Jesus, we will bear the fruit of righteousness and we will prove ourselves to be his disciples. But then he says within that, that we will actually glorify him in the process. Jesus explains how that works in Matthew 5, 16. In Matthew 5, 16, Jesus says, let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. You see, when we abide in Jesus, we start exhibiting the character of Jesus. We start becoming more loving. We start becoming more peaceful. We start becoming more self-controlled. And you know what? That stands out to people. We're going to look different than the people around us. And when they see how our character has changed because we're abiding in Jesus, the only explanation they will have is to ascribe it to the work of God. Do you hear how remarkable that is? When we abide in Jesus, the Father's not glorified by us, but the Father is glorified by other people who see our character being developed by abiding in him so that people around us will glorify God because they'll say, there is no way that that guy could be that way unless it was a work of God. One of our core values as a church is that we would glorify God. And that means a whole lot more than just coming together on a Sunday morning and singing some songs together. It means allowing our lives to be changed to the point where people around us will see the difference that Jesus is making in us and they will glorify God because they see what abiding in Christ has done to us. So the benefit of abiding in Jesus is that the Father is glorified. The third benefit of abiding in Jesus is that we will love one another. Take a look at verses 9 and 10. It says, as the Father has loved me, so I have loved you. Abide in my love. If you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love, just as I have kept my Father's commandments and abide in his love. In these two verses, Jesus is making a strong connection between keeping his commandments and love. And that's because Jesus' number one commandment is to love one another. If we skip down to verse 12, John 15, 12 says, this is my commandment, that you love one another as I have loved you. Now, Pastor Steve will cover chapter 12 next week, so I don't want to steal his thunder here. I don't want to elaborate on it, but this doesn't really take a lot of elaboration. Jesus' commandment is very simple. We love one another. So let's retrace the argument with that in mind. Jesus says that the Father has loved him, and so he has abided, he has dwelled in that love. Because he dwells in the love of the Father, he, it becomes very natural and normal for him to pass on that love to his disciples. And now that his disciples have experienced the love of Jesus, if they dwell, if they abide in Jesus' love, it should be very normal and natural for them to love one another. In other words, our love for one another comes from the love of Jesus, and the love of Jesus comes from the love of the Father. So to keep his commandment to love one another, we don't need to like just drum up some feelings of love for each other. Instead, what we need to do is we need to abide. We need to dwell. We need to be remain connected to the love that Jesus has for us. And sometimes people will get this backwards. They say, well, if I want Jesus to love me, then I have to earn his love by loving others, by keeping his commandments. 
because Jesus won't love me unless I keep his commandments. Jesus won't love me unless I prove myself to be loving. But that's not it at all. See, loving other people doesn't cause Jesus to love us. Rather, Jesus' love for us causes us to love other people. And so if we are struggling to love others, the answer isn't to just try harder, to try to like come up with some loving feelings for people we are tr- struggling to love. Rather, it's to abide deeper in the love that Jesus has for us. The answer is to abide in him more and more because loving others is a result of abiding. It's not the cause. The benefit of abiding in Jesus is that we will love one another. Finally then, a fourth and final benefit to abiding in Jesus is that we will have joy. We will have joy. Take a look at verse 11. These things I have spoken to you that your joy may be in, that my joy may be in you and that your joy may be full. The end result of abiding in Jesus, of abiding in his love, of abiding in his word, is that we will find joy. And not just a little joy here, because what does Jesus says? That your joy may be full. It's the fullness of joy. I think there's a lot of us who lack joy because we treat joy as if it's transactional. We expect that if we do the things that we're supposed to do, then Jesus is going to arrange circumstances such that my life can finally now be joyful. But joy that comes from abiding is not transactional. Joy that comes from abiding is relational. It's not, if I do all the right things, Jesus is going to arrange my circumstances so finally I can have joy. Rather, the joy comes with my relationship in Jesus. It's in my relationship with Jesus. And that relationship continues through good times and through hard times, through the tough times and through the easy times, so that my joy is constant because my abiding relationship with him is constant, regardless of circumstances. And so our joy is not found as a result of our circumstances. Our joy is found in our relationship with Jesus. Our joy comes from abiding in him and in his word and in his love. Because the benefit of abiding in Jesus is that we will be joyful. People, when we are connected to Jesus, the true vine, we will experience fruitful, meaningful, and joyful lives. So my question for you today is, are you experiencing fruitful, meaningful, and joyful lives? Do you feel like you're growing and producing more and more? Do do you feel like you know what your purpose and your meaning is? Do, Do you feel like a deep abiding joy regardless of your circumstances? Or would you say that you feel more like a cut-off branch that's withering and dying? Do you feel like your prayers are going unanswered? Do you feel like your desires and your wishes are going unfulfilled? Are you feeling that your life has no growth, no joy, and that you feel you have no purpose except to be gathered up and thrown on a burn pile? If that's you this morning, can I encourage you that your life does not have to be that way? Jesus is inviting you to abide in him to connect to him, to live with him, to dwell with him, to remain in him. And when we abide in him, that means we, we recognize that we can't do it on our own, that without him, we can do nothing. Abiding in him means that, that we believe that he is the son of God who's come to take away our sins. Abiding in him means that we're going to spend time reading his word, studying it, meditating on it. Abiding in him means praying to him, sharing with him our, our deepest hopes and our, honest, and our honest expression of who we are. And when we abide in Jesus... When we abide in his word, when we abide in his love, it changes us. 
Abiding in Jesus shapes our affections. It shapes our desires. It shapes our hope. And it shapes our heart. And as a result of that, it will show up in our character. It will show up in our attitudes. It will show up in our behaviors. And we will start living out the fruit of the Spirit. Love and joy and peace and patience and kindness and goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. Because when we are connected to Jesus, the true vine, we will experience fruitful, meaningful, and joyful lives. Let's pray.